It's a topic that a lot of people don't like to talk about, but it's an inevitable reality. I'm talking about death. Attitudes toward death and dying have changed through the ages, and they continue to evolve. Good morning. I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. On this morning's show, we're looking at death through a couple of different lenses, including 19th century song. Art song, opera, as everybody knows, in, in its melodramaticism, enjoys, you know, dealing with death and the absolute extremes of, you know, life and death. But first, a visit to a museum in Brooklyn that aims to demystify death with its exhibits and events. It's called the Morbid Anatomy Museum. I talked with creative director Joanna Ebenstein. How do you describe the Morbid Anatomy Museum? The way that we officially describe it is where we are committed to educating about and exhibiting objects, artifacts, and ideas that fall between the cracks of traditional institutional display and representation. So what does that mean exactly? Things that fall between the cracks. We're interested in showing things that other museums don't deal with because either it's too macabre or perhaps it falls between our ideas of what art and craft is or perhaps art and science. These things that that languish in museum backstages or in private collections because they just don't really make sense by today's museological standards. How did this museum come about? Yeah, so I've been doing a blog called Morbid Anatomy since 2007, which actually started for me, my background is visual art, as an art project where I was interested in looking at objects in medical museums and looking at them as cultural artifacts. So I traveled around the world. I went to Italy, the Netherlands, um, the UK, Budapest, all over the place, and collected all these images and all this information. When I came back, I started this blog, which was kind of a way for me to sort through my data. And very quickly, the blog, which really was very niche, it was basically the digital version of what you see here, very quickly developed an audience, and I began to get emails from people who just said, thank you, I didn't know anyone else was interested in this stuff, I didn't know anyone else cared, and they began to ask me if I had certain books that were on my list of my bibliography, and I did, and these books were often rare and out of print, so I felt very strongly I'd like to make them available. So about a year after starting the blog, I opened a public space where I made my private library available to the public by appointment. And then that became so popular that we started doing it one day a week. Um, So every Saturday we were open. Then we started to do a lecture event series in the space next door. And then I met these wonderful people who saw the opportunity for growing it to something larger, and that's what brought us here. To what do you attribute your interest in the morbid? You know, a lot of people ask me that. I don't have an easy answer. I think I was always interested in this material, and it's my my feeling that all children are interested in this. Uh, It's it's the world. You know, when I was a kid, I was interested in animals when they were alive, and I was also interested in them when they were dead. It didn't disturb me, and I think there's a moment in childhood, and especially for girls, where you realize that that's not socially acceptable and you change accordingly, but I, for some reason, never went through that change. So when I was a kid, I... You know, I had pet cats. I collected spiders and gave them to the local Natural History Museum. Um, I would find birds and try to nurse them back to health, and if they died, my father would buy formaldehyde and put them in formaldehyde, and I'd keep them in my room. And I can see how that seems creepy now, but to me it never seemed that way. I just kind of wanted a Natural History Museum. How do most people react to what you're telling me right now? (laughs) Uh, You know what? It depends. 
what's been so interesting about this project is it's brought into my orbit so many people, especially girls, who feel the same way I do. And one way that, that one thing that really demonstrates this is our most our most uh, popular offering that we do here is our taxidermy class. And I'd say it's 90% women who take this class. And they start with the dead mouse, and they skin it, and they stuff it, and they put it in little outfits. And this is hugely popular. They're, Obviously, it's not for everybody, and obviously there are some people who are still completely um, grossed out by it, but you'd be surprised how many are not. Why do you think it is that some people are drawn to that kind of thing and others run away from it? That's a really good question. Um, why? I don't know why. I, I think, if, if I had to say, I think it's people who had an interest in science and natural history when they were young are the people who are attracted to it. For me, and I, I feel like a lot of the people I speak to who, who are drawn to this material the way I am, we felt we had to make a hard decision when we were young between art and science. I wanted to do both. Um, to me, that's what this is really all about, is this combination of art and science. We are in the midst of your Art of Mourning exhibit. Tell us about this exhibit. Sure. So if you look around you here, you, you will see objects from the 1750s to about the 1950s. And these are all objects that were either meant to be displayed in the home or worn on the body that deal with ideas of mourning. So on this wall over here, you have a collection of post-mortem photographs. So these are photographs of dead children uh, posed as if they're asleep, and also some other sorts of, you know, you can see some images there of um, kind of beautiful parlor coffin scenes, um, some embroidery that, that, that uh, commemorates the dead. Uh, this is all related to the collection of a, a fellow named Stanley Burns, Dr. Stanley Burns, who is a, um, he's a consultant on that TV show, The Nick, and he's one of the preeminent photography collectors in the world. He, he wrote the first book on postmortem photographs. So you see postmortem photographs, you also see here... Hold on, because I'm okay. stuck on postmortem <laughs> photographs. Now, these images would have been displayed on the walls in a home? That's right, yeah. So... Yes, and, and to give a sense of the continuity of that, if you come over here and you see these from the 1950s, these, you, can, you can tell these were intended to be displayed on the home, in the home, right? There's no, what else would you do with that? So this idea that we have now that, the, that we shouldn't be looking at images of death is really, really historically new, and that's part of what I'm trying to say with this exhibition and, and with this greater project in general. This idea that we have that it's somehow inappropriate to contemplate death or look at images of death is a historically very new idea. When would you say that started to turn? Yeah, I'd say probably in the 1920s and 30s due to a variety of things. Um, before then, people butchered their own animals at home. Uh, the dead, when they died, didn't go to hospitals to die. They died in the home and were laid out in the home in the parlor, which was then renamed the living room when the funeral parlor outsourced that idea. And there were, you know, back in the 19th century, I think, the statistics are three in five children died before reaching adulthood. So death was just a very, whether we wanted to avoid it or not, it just could not be avoided. And so what I always like to say is the idea that we could deny death is a luxury unique to our own time and place. I don't think there's ever been a time or a culture that, that could deny death before because it happens everywhere, all around us, all the time, right? We all know we're going to die, but so many of us are just afraid to face it, afraid to talk about it. Yeah, and, you know, I wouldn't say that I... I love thinking about my own death either, but at the same time, to me, um, you know, my whole life I've been called morbid because I'm interested in this stuff, and I accepted that for a while. And then I thought to myself, well, why is it morbid to contemplate death? If we're all going to die, isn't it kind of morbid not to contemplate death? And to be in a culture that, that actually has no deeper 
philosophical way of dealing with it. And maybe this is just about the you know post-religious moment that we're in. It, it's hard for me to know. When you look around here, a lot of these images are very very Christian. And with Christianity, you do have a narrative that that makes death meaningful. It could just be that we're at a moment when we still haven't found a way to make death meaningful. But ultimately, we need to because it, it's something that will affect us if we don't directly face it. Yeah, we need to plan for it financially for well, our families too. That's a good point, yeah. There's, there's practical things as well, but I think there's also how, you know, the, the relationship between life and death is so deep. How we choose to live our lives is dependent on how we, if we think about our own death. And so, for example, for the longest time I was afraid of flying. When I would get on an airplane, I would think, okay, if I die on this plane, what would I do differently? And I think so much of what I have ended up doing, not doing a nine-to-five job, starting to collect, starting to make things available is because I do contemplate my own death. And I realize I could die at any moment, so I'm going to use my time on Earth to the best of my ability. Now, over here, Joanna, we have a portrait of what I would say looks like a very creepy kid. These are creepy kids because they're, they're dead children. Ooh. So these are the painting versions of the post-mortem photographs you see over there. So in this, at this time period in the 19th century, um, photography was pretty expensive. Only the middle class could do it. But if you were wealthy, really wealthy, you would have a post-mortem portrait commissioned in oils. So we have here uh, three paintings. You could tell these children on the left and the right, because they're in the clouds, that's what shows that they're dead. And the other one is holding a sprig of forget-me-nots, which is a symbol of mourning. Is anyone still doing this anywhere in the world? There is a woman who is making dolls for people who have lost premature babies, and it helps them mourn. Um, and there are people who are going, and from what I've heard, volunteering in hospitals to take pictures of the dead. So yeah, and yes, there are. And then also, I'm sure you've heard about this kind of selfies at funerals kind of thing. So I think with the rise of um, everyone having a camera on them at all times, I think it's happening in lots of ways that we just don't see. I don't think it's hung on the wall any longer. That's probably what makes it different. Now, what's in this display case over here? Yeah, so this display case over here is um, mostly hair art. So this wall is devoted to hair art. So Hair, H-A-I-R, hair that's art. That's right, human hair. So if you look closely, do you see all these hanging pieces, these shadow boxes? All of them contain human hair in one way or another. This was an art form that was popular in the 19th century. Sometimes it was memorial. It was, it was um, honoring the dead. But sometimes it was just sentimental. So if you look here, if you look closely, do you see that's actually human hair in braid form? And if you see here, this little wreath, that's made of hair as well. It's actually amazingly artful. It is. And, and what's interesting, when, you know, to see this full range of the different ways in which it was done, you can see that it could range from the very, very artful to the crude. Um, and that this, to me, also says that this is something that was so much a part of culture that people were finding any way they could to do it. This is one of my favorite pieces from this section, which is one of the strangest things I've seen. If you look closely, the tree branches and the shrub branches and the chains between the fence posts, that's all human hair. And so what you're looking at here is a diorama of a cemetery scene from the, I think, 1886 is the date on the, on the tomb. And um, you would display this in your home. Now, was this hair taken from the living or from the dead? Uh, presumably from the dead. Uh, it might be a combination. Sometimes you would do something that was the whole family. It might be the, the dead and the living intertwined. I'm guessing that this tree that's behind the tombstone is the hair of that, that dead person. So you said it was a way to memorialize. That's right. And, and one thing that I find really interesting about this is we have someone here who teaches this, this skill for us, this, this craft. Her name is Karen Bachman. She's our resident in November, actually. She'll be doing a lot of uh, lectures and classes around the idea of hair work. And she, so when I took her class, what really, really struck me is, first of all, hair is very, very difficult to work with, and it takes a lot of time. And as you spend your 
time trying to make this hair into an artwork, I, I began to think if it, was, if it was actually the hair of someone who had died, it would be this kind of um, a tribute to them in a sense. It's really a way of paying, paying attention, taking care, and, and I think mourning in a way. And creating, you know, the object is one thing, but I think the making of the object probably had, had as much to do with kind of mourning and the process of, of grief as anything else. And in a way, I wonder if, if there's something that we could learn from this today. Maybe there's something about this time that you need to spend paying tribute to the dead. And hair doesn't decompose like the body does. Well, that's right. And so basically, hair doesn't decompose and bones don't decompose. But bones, my skull and your skull would look pretty similar. But what Karen so rightly points out is that human hair is how we think of, you know, it's one of our main identifying characteristics. So I would say if I was going to meet you at a bar, oh, yeah, my hair's long and blonde or whatever. Um, it's something that, that's really intrinsic to our identity, and it never, it never goes away, though it does fade a little bit. The Art of Mourning is a temporary exhibit, right? You also have a permanent collection. Yes. Uh, the, the Art of Mourning will be up until December 4th. And then, yes, well, shall we take a look at the permanent collection? Let's do. So this is the Morbid Anatomy Library, and this is, this is kind of how it all began. This is my own collection of books and artifacts, ephemera, artworks, wet specimens, skeletons, uh, photographs, all sorts of things that I make available to the public or have been since 2006. Wet specimens meaning things in jars and formaldehyde. Well said. Exactly. That's what a wet specimen is. So right over here, this is kind of um, the realization of my dream when I was a kid to have a natural history museum. This is the kind of stuff I loved seeing at museums and the kind of thing I love sharing with people here, especially children. Children really love this. Describe some of the things in the jars here. Yeah, sure. So one of my favorites is this small snake that I bought at an antique store in Ohio. We have some dried bats here. We have, um, I believe this is a mouse, and it's been treated so you don't see the flesh. You see only the bones, which have been dyed in this kind of bright pink. This is the same kind of treatment, but with a bat. Uh, we have a fish here. We have um, a stingray who's been stained so you can see its inner workings. We have a chick. We have a baby possum. And we have a fetal pig. And then here, I believe we have a snake swallowing another snake and somehow died in the process. Now, what can we learn from this? Uh, you know, there's probably lots you can learn from it. Um, and we have scientists who come in and know the species and that sort of thing. I mean, you can learn about the structure of the animal in these kind of ways, like I was saying, when the, um, the flesh has been made invisible so you can see the underlying structure. But to me, it, it, they're, they're kind of objects of contemplation, and they're beautiful things as well. And I think... You know, I grew up in California where we had lots of access to nature and natural history museums, and I don't think children have that much access here. Now, you mentioned that you have a chick in formaldehyde over here. Now, over here, you have a two-headed chick, a two-headed chick. <laughs> That's right. Uh, that was a gift from my father for my birthday this year. A gift from your father. Yes, that's right. And uh, it's, it's actually one of the most popular things in here. I will say it's not real in the sense that two chicks were used to create uh. this, this piece. So it was not... A original two-headed duckling. Yes. You destroyed that whole thing. For I me. know. I'm sorry. I shouldn't. I should have. I should have just let it go, shouldn't I? Sorry. And this is a cast of a gorilla foot, which was a donation to the museum. So you can actually touch this, and and this is probably the closest you'll ever get to touching a real gorilla foot. Now, unlike other museums, you can't handle things in here, right? Oh, you can handle things in here. Yes, you can handle anything in an open case here. So we encourage people to come in. They can take photographs. They can sit down with books. They can ask questions. They can spend all day in here, so long as I'm concerned. And if they're a researcher, if there's someone... So we also have this book collection, and especially we're especially strong in, in um, 
art and medicine, and death and culture. So if you're interested in these topics, we're open to researchers. They just have to write a letter of inquiry, and they can come use the collection. Who primarily is coming through this museum? You know, it's a surprisingly, a surprisingly wide array of people. Um, we certainly have our share of subcultural kids, you know, kids with tattoos and pink hair and that sort of thing. But we have a lot of families. We have um, couples on dates. We have um, nursing students from Georgia. We have all sorts of people. You'd be surprised. What would you say is the oddest object <laughs> in here? Oh, geez, that's tough. I'll ask you what you think is the oddest object in here. I look at it too much. I think that face in the case over there Which is one? pretty odd. The, the one, one here on the, on the right? right, yeah, this cast yeah. of somebody. This is actually, this is a, uh, a moulage. So basically, um, there's a woman named Eleanor Crook who will be an artist in residence for us at some point in the future. She taught a class for me in Amsterdam where we, we do some events where we made, we made these pieces. So she, we started with a sculpture of the face. So you can see this is a beautiful very atmospheric wax sculpture of the face, and then we studied different kinds of disease, and we added the elements of the disease. So I added these these um, bubbles or warts or whatever you want to call them, and the coloring, and then we, we pinned it to the board. And so this is a traditional technique called moulage. If you look up here, this is a real moulage. So this is made probably in the early 20th century, and what a real moulage is, it's a cast of a diseased body part that's used by medical students to learn about disease. Okay, well maybe now that's the oddest no, object in yeah, here. I don't know about that. And this is a really interesting object. I don't know how odd it is, but this is a phrenological death mask. So what this is, if you, if you see, if you look closely, you can see this is a plaster cast of someone's face. And you can see that the eyes are open. The eyes being open show that it's a death cast. So basically, when somebody dies, or sometimes while they're alive, you can do a cast of their face. Why and, would you do that? Well, in this case, if you look closely, do you see these pencil lines here? I do. So those are measuring the different parts of the head that, that in the 19th century, the, um, what we would now call pseudoscience of phrenology believed that the different, these different aspects, depending on if they were prominent, more prominent or less prominent, would tell you about the personality of the person. So the idea was that the brain, um, I, these, different, these different characteristics were localized in the brain, kind of like neuroscience today, actually, and that the brain would be bigger or smaller in those places because of this, these characteristics, so that you could actually read the bumps on the head to tell about the person. So this is a, a death mask that was taken. It was probably a person who was extraordinary in some way, either uh, in an infamous way, being a criminal or a genius, one or the other, and they were trying to measure and find out what its special his I'm assuming his special characteristics were. And this is probably from the early, um, we think from the mid-19th century, so 1850s or 1860s. Where do you primarily go to obtain objects? All over the place. This one I bought from, um, if you knew the store Maxilla and Mandible, which you might because you've done lots of stuff around the city, uh, it was from his collection, Henry's collection. Do you travel all over the world in search of things? I do travel all over the world um, in search of photographs more than things, actually, but I do collect things along the way when I can afford them. Joanna, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks so much for coming. Joanna Ebenstein is the creative director of the Morbid Anatomy Museum in Brooklyn. They're online at morbidanatomymuseum.org. This is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Boldarki. 
from morbid anatomy to songs from beyond the crypt. In the studio with me now is Dale Vandersand of the Bond Street Euterpian Singing Society. They're the arts group in residence at the Merchant's House Museum, New York City's only family home preserved intact, inside and out, from the mid-19th century. And if you're a cityscape regular, you know that the Merchant's House has also been dubbed the most haunted house in New York City. We've featured stories about its ghostly encounters several times in the past. Dale is here to talk about chant macabre and spooky singing. Dale, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So tell me a little bit about the Bond Street Euterpian Singing Society. It's kind of an informal group that we've uh, been together for about 10 years. We're in our 10th season at the Merchant's House. We're the arts group in residence at the Merchant's House um, in order to bring, we were volunteers and wanted to bring our talents, our professional skills to an historical capacity so we can bring art song in particular, a little bit of opera, you know, to an authentic parlor setting that we have with the Greek Revival Parlor uh, in the Merchant's House. To the most haunted house in all of New York City, According right? According to the New York <laughs> Times, right. You recently performed at the Merchant's House. The performance was called Chant Macabre, Songs from the Crypt. Tell us more about that. Yeah, well, the name Chant Macabre comes from, it's kind of a play on Danse Macabre, which is by Saint-Saëns which originally started as an art song, and then he created the orchestral version that we all know so well. So, Songs from the Crypt. What we tried to do was create a Halloween program, because art song, opera, as everybody knows, in, in its melodramaticism, enjoys you know dealing with death and, and the absolute extremes of you know life and death. And, and there's a fascination in the 19th century about it, probably because it was part of the reality of life. You know, people had uh, were used to losing some children to death, and medicine wasn't quite there yet. We didn't have antibiotics until uh, the 20th century, so people had died quite uh, often. And so, you know, even what we know today as funeral parlors and stuff like that started coming about during the 19th century. Now, funerals were actually in the home back then as well. The coffin would have been laid out in the parlor room. During that's right. That well, that's where funeral parlor comes from, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Dale, give me another example of a spooky song. We have some of the uh, ones that people may think of if they understand or know the art song tradition. Uh, the Earl König, which is by Schubert as well. Gretchen am Spinrade, which is kind of based on a Faust myth. Uh, Lorelei, which is a German uh, spirit that, you know, kills the sailors on the rock on the Rhine. Uh, so we have, we cover some of that, and there's a lot of German tradition in here because the art song genre is... Uh, has been exalted in the German tradition in the 19th century. But we also have, we start off with uh, some Gilbert and Sullivan. The first part of the program was um, more comical, a little bit more, you know, the fun part. The second part was more spooky and and creepy. How did you go about making your selections? Well, first was to find out which songs reflected kind of what we see as the horror genre today, which is more 
of a terror genre than a horror genre. You know, we think of, of monsters coming at you and, you know, things creeping out and crawling. So ghosts, witches, goblins. There's really very little about vampires or Frankenstein, although those are 19th century inventions. A lot of the poetry from art song also harkens back to the original period of Gothic literature, which was the late 18th century. So it was the 19th century did not invent all of the horror genre. Many of the stories, as I had mentioned, come from the Gothic period. Now, because a lot of this is European music, it's more of the European Gothic, which started in England and Germany quickly took on its own character of that. There's an American Gothic aspect as well. We do some parlor music that we could find. Um, there's a difference between the old Gothic and the American Gothic. Um, there's more supernatural in the American Gothic, which probably, you know, leads to our current day horror movies, which have changed character as well over time. But it's a long timeline from the English Gothic from 1760s until now. You can trace it all back from the films all the way back to that novel uh, genre. What is your favorite song to perform? Oh, I would say it's the Erlkönig. Why is that? Uh, partly it's because of the dramatis, dramatic you know, quality of the music. Um, it's exciting. It's, it has four different voices that I have to use, kind of four different characters, if you will. There's a, there's a narrator. There's uh, the father who speaks. There's the Erlkönig, who's the spirit, you know, the kind of uh, nebulous spirit that comes and wants to take the child, and the child speaks as well. So uh, it's about a man riding with his child in his arm on his horse, and he comes to a particular part in the woods, and the child sees the Erlkönig and hears him, and the father is saying, no, 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 that can't be it, until he sees him too, and the, he sees his daughters, and then uh, he rides home, and then there's the, su the surprise ending. Pretty spooky stuff. It is spooky, yeah. And, and it, it has such a wonderful ballad quality. The story is so uh, is rich. It's rich in its, in its dialogue. So uh, that's quite fun to do. Which would you say is the song that really leaves people with the biggest impact? I would also say, um, as far as the spook factor goes, there's also the song Trepak from Songs and Dances of Death by Mussorgsky. Now, it's sung in English, but it is Russian, and this comes from a set of four songs, and that one reflects a kind of a poetry that's much more like horror. You know, maybe there's a witch character, but, but it's much more horror than terror um, in that it's, it, it takes terror beyond that into horror, and, and there's no turning back from it. music as well is um, more reflective of what we might think, maybe it's later in the century too that it was composed, more reflective of what we would think of as, you know, movie music that would would creep, um, you know, send chills down our spine. I was going to ask you, what is the contemporary counterpart to this music and it's movie music, you think? I would think so, certainly. 
So because it's narrative, and with art, song, music, it's all based on words. So you know, everything has to kind of word paint in a way. What's it like to perform in the Merchant's House? It's actually very nice. Uh, it has very tall ceilings. There's you know beautiful plaster. First of all, it's visually stunning because there's extensive plaster work that is considered to be on par with the White House. Some of the most uh, beautiful plaster work in a residence, anyway, that's uh, existing. Maybe the premier plaster work that still exists. There's beautiful Port Douro marble fireplace we're standing right in front of. You know, we're sitting in an authentic atmosphere. So that in itself helps the audience come to the historicity of our work. So, you know, in order to prepare, it's as a group, we're also dedicated to what is historical. So we're not really um, trying to be historical in a performance practice sort of way, but in the texts and the music that we choose, the way we program things so that it flows, you know, uh, so that the whole program kind of has an emotion that flows through from beginning to end. These things are what's important in how we perform because it's we're on stage the whole time and we're, you know, whether we're not, even if we're not singing, we're part of the presence. Dale, thank you so much for coming in. Okay, thank you. Dale Vandersand is a tenor with the Bond Street Euterpian Singing Society. Their next performance is called Love in the Parlors. It's happening on Valentine's Day at the Merchant's House Museum on Manhattan's Lower East Side. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. If you missed an episode of the show, not to worry. You'll find past episodes in our archives at wfuv.org slash cityscape. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, follow us on Twitter, and like us on Facebook. There are many ways to stay connected with Cityscape. I'm George Bodarki. My thanks to producer Taylor Nolk. Have a great weekend. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.